0: Well, last week, uh, Michael introduced us to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and you know, in the course of that introduction, we learned about why it is that the Philippians um, and Paul had such a special relationship, uh, the affection and love that is demonstrated in that letter and that opening. And today, as we continue, we're going to be looking um, at the confidence that Paul has and the confidence that can be ours uh, in a life that is energized by the good news about what Jesus has done. I mean, I, I guess the question to ask you this morning is, do you, as you enter into your work week, do you, do you feel confidence? And um, we'll talk some a little bit about that. Or, you know, is there, um, are you anxious about uh, what's coming up? Can, how can you approach a week and the tasks that you have to do in the unknown um, with something that is, that is deeper. You know, the, the confidence that um, I want us to get our heads around is the confidence uh, that is not the same thing as believing that all of your circumstances are going to be great, um, that they're going to play out as you've imagined. The, the confidence that's in the gospel is something that's different. Uh, It's deeper. It's more abiding. Maybe it's less specific with respect to... It's definitely less specific with respect to circumstances. But it's this kind of confidence that moves Paul to to write and to say to the Philippians the first thing that he says in the passage that you'll hear a little bit more. Uh, When he says that, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Right? Consider the words has really. Paul is saying that his circumstances would not actually, if you were to look at them on their own, and maybe according to common sense, those circumstances wouldn't engender confidence. And as we look at Philippians 1, 12 to 8, we're going to be looking at how Paul's past circumstances have worked to advance the gospel, and then how his present circumstances are not undermining that confidence, okay? Um, Before Christine Hollis comes up and reads this morning's passage, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, Paul is later going to talk about the peace that surpasses understanding, And Lord, we ask that you would send us your spirit and give us that peace, that confidence. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to feel the firm, solid foundation under our feet, um, to know that we are being um, upheld, that like the psalmist says in Psalm 46, that when the world is falling apart around, um, that there is a stillness and there is a knowledge in knowing you. Um, and that there's this confidence. So, Lord, I ask that you would, again, help us. Uh, We are listening. We are desperate. And uh, we pray that you would uh, bless the reading, the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So firstly, how have Paul's circumstances served to advance the gospel? What's happened to Paul? The way in which we can kind of get to that question is we can turn back to Acts chapter 21 and move forward looking at Paul's life. We read that three years earlier from when Paul has written this letter um, from his imprisonment that Paul had collected an offering to take to Jerusalem And this is probably the offering that Paul is describing and talking about in 2 Corinthians. After Paul arrives in Jerusalem with the offering, he's received by the brothers and sisters there who, um, he's taking this offering because the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are suffering under a famine. And after being encouraged by the brothers in Jerusalem that he do something to demonstrate Um, his commitment to the God and the religion of his fathers, Paul agrees to make a vow and an offering at the temple. And along with the demonstration of his own piety, he also agrees to take along with him several Jewish brothers um, for whom he is also going to pay the temple tax so that they too might make a vow there at the temple. Now it happens that as Paul is in the temple... Some Jews from Asia, we read, and I think it's probably likely that they were from Ephesus. And if you read Acts, you know that in, when Paul was in Ephesus, um, there was a riot that took place. We read that there were these men from Ephesus. They see Paul and they assume that Paul has brought, the, brought these men who are from Asia, who are Gentiles, because Paul's known for ministering among the Gentiles, that he's brought these Gentiles, um, who were uncircumcised, if they were so, um, beyond what was called the wall of hostility. That Paul has brought them into the temple compound from the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, into the court of Israel. And there was a wall that actually separated those two. It was about waist high, and it had plaques on it. Um, and the plaque said, "If you are an uncircumcised Jew and you pass beyond this point, you're you're taking your life in your own hands." Right? That's a, and that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about this wall of hostility. It separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel, and and so they concoct this story that Paul has done this, that he has violated um, temple worship, um, just as they did at, emphasis, uh, at Ephesus. They try and start a riot. And Paul is beaten by Roman officials and he is almost murdered at this time. In order to keep Paul alive and in hopes that someone will slip them a bribe, the government officials keep Paul um, in prison in Caesarea and he continues under arrest for two years. Out of maybe a sense of exasperation, but a desire to get on with his mission, finally, Paul appeals his case to the emperor in Rome, which was the right and privilege of any Roman citizen. He's bound to a Roman centurion and he is escorted onto a ship to be taken to Rome. And Paul's voyage lasts months. They're delayed by the weather. Um, those who were on the ship were eager to get to Rome, um, but they discount Paul's counsel, and as a consequence, they're caught in a winter storm in the Mediterranean, which they ride out on the ship for two weeks. Can you imagine? I mean, if you're going to be seasick. You know, two weeks in a boat in a storm is not pleasant. Finally, Paul um, through a word from the Lord, convinces the ship's crew that they must run their boat aground on the nearest island. And the boat and its crew are finally shipwrecked, and they are shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta. Wet, weary, hungry, and cold, Paul attempts to build a fire. And Luke tells us that as he's collecting firewood, Paul grabs a stick, It is a little bit too close to a poisonous snake, and the poisonous snake bites him. And it seems clear to everybody who witnesses this that what what this means, um, they they deduce some things, and they say, "When, when the native people, we read this in Acts, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, right? So you can just imagine he's like, the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. That is, no one could be so unfortunate as to have the things that have happened to Paul unless they had three strikes against them. Paul was obviously... (laughs) I guess. He was wearing, I would say a t- t-shirt, but it would have been a tunic, right? He was wearing a tunic that had a big bullseye on it. He must have done they had to do something awful and terrible to get this sort of payback. I mean, you know, to to make it, you know, they, actually they, they ran the ship um, on a reef and they had to swim from the reef to make it to the land, right? So, He must have done something terribly wrong to be marked for this kind of judgment. Now, if we're honest, I think that we think about our circumstances this way too. Problems, difficult circumstances, unfortunate events, tragedy come to people whom God must not like. That's what we think. I mean, I think probably in the moment of that pressure, that's what squeezes out of our hearts. Paul, though, models a different way of thinking. And he says that the way of thinking, the thinking that deduces I must be cursed or God is unloving, is actually all upside down and backwards. In fact, Paul says, all that has happened has actually served to advance the gospel so how so? How does it, how, how has the events that he has undergone, standing here, you know, um, how is all of that, now in prison in Rome, how has all of that served to advance the gospel? So, Paul, though he's falsely accused and in prison, he is given the opportunity to declare the gospel before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He gets to tell all of the elders about of, of Israel about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of whom, uh, I mean, there were many. When, When the fight broke out between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over the resurrection, which is what Paul basically says, this is what this is all about, this argument about the resurrection, Paul has to be rescued by a Roman detachment because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are fighting with each other. And while he's under arrest... He receives what you might imagine are his marching orders. The Lord appears to him. And in Acts 23, we read that the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That is Paul's mission. Paul is going to Rome to testify about Jesus Having come to Jerusalem and testified about Jesus before the officials of the land, Paul will do the same for the Roman Empire. Now, he's a captive, right? He's moved to Caesarea, and and though he's still a captive, the gospel is actually advancing. Paul has audiences with the governor, um, with Governor Felix and his wife Drusilla, who was herself a Jew. They heard him speak about his faith in Christ. And when Portius Festus succeeded Felix, Paul testifies not only to Festus, but also to King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And they had heard about Paul. They actually wanted to hear what Paul had to say about all of these things that were going on. And Paul testifies again about the story of his conversion and the calling of Christ on his life. And Agrippa finally, you know, in Paul's earnestness, To declare the truth of who Christ is, Agrippa finally says, You know, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Right? Having appealed there, at that time, um, to trial, his trial to be judged by Caesar, Paul is now committed to the custodianship of a centurion named Julius, who is from the Augustan co- cohort. Do you think Julius got out of hearing about the gospel? Right? And what about all of those who were on the ship in the storm for two weeks and before? who ultimately came to know that their lives had been saved by the God whom Paul worshipped. After running their ship aground on Malta, Paul and his companions, they ministered in Jesus' name to the inhabitants of Malta for three months while they're on the island. Since, as the scriptures say, Paul didn't swell up and suddenly fall down dead. After he was bitten by the viper, the people think Paul's a god. Malta's first man, the protos, named Pubulus, invites Paul to his estate where he shows him hospitality um, to he and his companions. And then hearing that Pubulus' father was sick, Paul visited him and prayed for him and put his hand on him and healed him and so impressed, it so impressed the islanders that the rest of the sick and ill on the island of Malta came, and they were cured. And finally, at last, arriving to Rome, Paul is assigned a house where others were allowed to visit him. And accompanied by the centurion, great numbers of Jews in Rome came to hear Paul as he awaits to be heard by the the emperor of the Roman Empire. I want you to know, he says, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. God is sovereign in all of these things. The circumstances are terrible. But God is working. Paul knows that the Lord is loving. People do suffer. His people do suffer. But the presence of suffering and the truth of the Lord's power do not equal meaninglessness or uselessness. So how is it serving to advance the gospel? Right, as Paul's continued in Rome, he says that there, there are two other things that are impacts of his presence there and of the gospel. Firstly, that it's become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ. The Roman government, the empire, has Paul as a captive, but Paul is freely preaching and proclaiming the gospel about Jesus. And his gospel is captivating Rome. Right? And, And there's not just one social strata or kind of person who is attracted. All are attracted to the gospel. Right? All are hearing the gospel. Right? From the praetorium right into the household of Caesar. And consequently, inspired by the Lord's use of Paul, confidence among the brethren of the church in Rome begins to grow. The worthiness, the worthiness of the gospel, the message about Jesus and the promises, what he has secured for us, the salvation, um, outweighs the consequences and the circumstances. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Right? They're seeing in Paul that circumstances are not everything. But how does this persecution and suffering and difficulty work to increase one's confidence? Right? When, if you go to the doctor and the doctor asks you where it hurts... They're drawing closer to pain. And the pain points indicate something significant or to notice. Uh, you don't go to the doctor if you're feeling okay. You show up at the doctor and say, hey, I just wanted to drop in and just say, everything's great. I mean, that might be some cause for rejoicing, you know, but that's not, that's not what you do. When you are facing and dealing with Difficult circumstances, right? When strong emotions are welling up and are present. That can be an indicator that you're close to something. And it's time at that moment to stop and to think, what is going on? right? What's going on in my heart? And, th- and when those emotions, they come out, um, you're, I, it's hard. It's difficult to be in a moment when you're with a person who is going through that, but you need to remember that you're actually probably standing on holy ground because in that moment, a person's body, their mind, and their heart are all connected, and you have a great opportunity for ministry, right? The the pressure that the brethren that Paul endure in persecution and in difficulty and circumstances, right, they can provide an opportunity of closeness. And the closeness can be an experience of the closeness of Jesus and his provision. Because really, that's what the question is all about when you're in the midst of that difficulty. Uh, We pray for people who are going through difficult circumstances that the Lord would be with them, don't we? Now, he's promised to be with them, doesn't he? So it's not so much that, hey, Lord, have you forgotten? You know, I just want to make sure this gets bumped up you know, on your email list, right, so you can, you can see that you have to respond to this right away. What, what we're praying for them is that they would experience that, that they would see that the Lord is near. right? If Paul hadn't been a victim of an unjust accusation and imprisonment, how else would Felix... And Drusilla, and Festus, and Agrippa, and Bernice, and Julius, and Publius, have heard the gospel, right? Now, theoretically, that sounds great. Maybe in the midst of the moment, we're not so easily persuaded. Paul moves on to another, uh, another kind of uncomfortable thing, a, a truth that begs addressing, and it's a circumstance that I would call a "what about." Uh, The what about is, uh, and what about isms are the thing that, you know, it's an anecdotal attempt to try and undermine what's being asserted, right? So you may say these things, like, these things are true, and a person will push back and they'll say, yeah, but what about, right? Your heart does that, right? Your enemy does that. What about, and we're tempted to believe that our difficult trials and troubles are saying, uh, the, what they're saying in these circumstances that we're going through. And, and we're tempted to believe that they're actually evidence that um, testifies against the fact that God is with you, that God loves you. But the truth is just the opposite. Right? We don't look to our circumstances for our confidence. We look to the promises and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not found on our circumstances, whether they're good or they're bad. Paul shows them how his circumstances have been used by God. Paul tells them that these same circumstances have opened many, many opportunities through the empire and into Rome. Yet there's still this what about to which the Philippians and others might be tempted when they hear about it or have heard about it to believe that it undermines Paul's reason for his confidence. And the what about is this. What about those who are preaching from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, sincerely intending to cause more trouble for Paul while he's in prison? What about that? All of what it is that you've endured, what about those guys Doesn't that undermine the whole I'm a blessed man message that Paul's asserting? We, friends, can what about ourselves into despair at any time? The question is that in looking to and seeing Jesus and looking to the one whom Paul will describe later in chapter 2 in what is called the Song of Christ, Why would you want to undermine that confidence? Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to who these people are um, and who this faction is, why they're doing what they're doing, and it seems that it parallels what he's going to say later in chapter two when he talks about selfish ambition and vain conceit, that those who are preaching are not filled fully with the vision or the song of the beauty of the Lord in the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ in chapter two. Paul doesn't, he doesn't quibble about the degree or the thoroughness of their salvation. What matters to Paul is this, his mission, and that is that Jesus is proclaimed. It, it could be that these people aren't even Christians, that they're just talking about Jesus, but that excites Paul, because at least they're talking about Jesus, and it's begging questions, and they're learning about things. The... And it could be that there are people who are preaching so that they might stir up friction for Paul, that their preaching might be an attempt to rub Paul's circumstances into him the same way that the chains to which he is shackled um, are rubbing the skin on his limbs. Regardless, the outcome is the same. Paul is a captive to the Lord Jesus, not to Caesar. These others aren't Paul's servants. If they're... If they're servants of Jesus, they're his servants, Paul has, he's resigned a long time ago, um, his responsibility of management and the control of other people, right? It's not his business. Who is whose and what they should be doing is Jesus' business. It doesn't matter for Paul because all that matters is that Christ is being proclaimed. And what does this produce in Paul? It produces gratitude and joy. And, you know, what's better is that you can actually what about the what about. (laughs) Because there are still others who preach Christ out of a goodwill. They preach out of love they're emboldened there's no hardship that can they know that there's no hardship that can separate them from the love of jesus christ they see in paul one who is overcoming and they are inspired and moved paul isn't in rome trying to take over the church trying to show others who's the boss trying to horn in on their business paul has come for the defense and the testimony of the gospel and regardless of their motives, Paul is grateful that Christ is preached because this is the very thing that he is eager to do and for what he rejoices in. Paul's obviously concerned that the Philippians have, word has gotten back to them and that they are concerned about what they've heard about his circumstances. They they love him. They suffer with him, have suffered alongside of him, and Paul wants them to know that the indicators of blessing are not understood by the surface circumstances. But, you know, for us, it's kind of our default switch that we always, every time we open, if we're thinking about this as maybe software, every time you open the program, you have to go in and you have to find that thing in the menu that's buried in sub-menus sub and unclick it. Because that default setting says that circumstances are our blessing indicator. And it's not true. Paul has in his eye Jesus Christ. He fills Paul's field of vision. And just as Jesus filled the field of Paul's vision when he stood beside Paul in Caesarea, right? He stands with him now. I want you to know, brothers, Paul is saying, friends, looking at my life, you'd be tempted to think that things are not well, that what I have borne in adversity is undeserved, that I should be resentful, is a bad fortune, that I should complain against God. And looking at my circumstances, you might be tempted to believe that your circumstances mean things about your usefulness and Jesus' love for you. But I want you to know that I do not regret a thing I don't resent a thing. Christ is proclaimed. He has lifted me up out of the miry pit of my own violence and pride and ambition and hardness and self-concern, and he has set my feet upon a rock. Jesus is with me, and he has been with me ever since I was hell-bent on my way to Damascus to find and to persecute his people, to persecute him. Rejoice with me, he says. And do this one thing for me be confident, be bold, speak the word without fear, proclaim Christ out of love, in sincerity, and rejoice.